Hello, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm going to intro it this time, I guess. Welcome to uh, Diving Into the Wreckage, a collaborative project between the Antifada and Varnvlog. I'm here, of course, with the host of this chat room, Derek Varn. What's up, man? Hey, I'm doing okay. Um, I guess I'm going to be Dr. No today and make your audience squeamish. I, I try not to be the total voice of doom, but... Mm. I think today we're going to have to really disaggregate some things for people, some geopolitics, some ways in which left economists have predicted things and they've been wrong, but maybe the world is catching up to them, um, which does not mean we should listen to them because they're consistently wrong. But um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's something to think about, and I think we're going to have to deal with a couple of different theories of inflation. You know, I think the public has one theory of inflation. The central bank has another. And I, I'm going to go ahead and venture from what I understand. Neither theory is actually super explanatory for what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. But there are some there's some backstop stuff we really need to go through where uh, just as a I mean, a main note up top, we we're putting the uh, I think probably what will be the last episode of the first principles miniseries aside. Uh, because as you texted me like a week or so ago, you're like, events are moving quite fast. We should probably table that and go back to our uh, debt mm -hmm. crisis series, which this is uh, episode four of that. Uh, things got quiet for a bit, so we kind of looked elsewhere. But events had a way of conspiring towards bringing us back uh, to this series. So if you haven't listened to the the first three of them, you should check that out, too. And uh, this might not be the last because... Um, Obviously, with the failure of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, what is that, a week and a half ago or so? Two and weeks ago, yeah. Weeks and ago. then Signature Bank. Signature uh, Bank. Uh, uh, Credit Suisse uh, just, Credit just Suisse, last week. Significant fragility in the medium-term banking sector, which is doing most of the home loans. You've got uh, uh, Treasury. You've got uh, the bond market going absolutely nuts nuts like massive swings that we haven't seen uh in at least 15 years ago or so which indicates all sorts of turmoil under the surface and this is i think what we want to get at with this episode like you said we have to try to understand the underlying aspects of this of course inflation is part of that but where does inflation come from blah 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 uh but also we want to try to look towards uh what potential fragile breaking points exist right now uh, specifically investors themselves in a recent survey that came out from Bank of America, all of a sudden you saw that the shadow banking sector became the scariest um, part of the, the risk portfolio for them. And we have to look at that and understand why it is that the capitalists themselves are so freaked out about this particular sector of the economy, what it is, and the ways in which it's connected to all the other parts of the economy. Well, we have we have shadow banking and then we have the debt ceiling looming, which is... Yeah which is going to get kind of interesting because if the if the Republicans pull the trigger on the debt ceiling, I think Yellen is right, as much as I don't love her, that we're in a world in which the U.S. starts to lose this percentage of the reserve currency. Now, people like Michael Hudson have been predicting this for a year. I, I think he has reasons for doing that that are, I'm not going to say pernicious, but at least tied to his very strong allegiance to the Chinese state. Mm -hmm. But there is also a real sense in which 
to really look at this, we're going to have to dig into inflation and what the central bankers are saying versus what they're doing, because their their thesis, and I've pointed out many times on many different shows, their thesis on why they're doing what they're doing is actually fundamentally different than what it was under Paul Volcker. Mm. Paul Volcker's the original thesis of monetarism as manifested by Paul Volcker was was that raising interest rates would discourage banks from making risky loans, but it would also give them a lot of capital to pay back on savings rates. So people would move their money from from spending to savings, increasing the deposits of the banks over time so that they could go back into making more solvent loans, sucking stuff out of the economy in terms of liquidity and but also making savings prioritized for individuals that's not true mm. that's never happened uh so what actually happens is uh is private debt starts to increase pretty significantly and we see this in the 80s and 90s a lot actually and and you also see banking instability happens when you do this now mmters take this as you know that basically money is a public monopoly there's an infinite amount of it uh caveat asterisk that infinite amount is tied to its velocity in the economy um, and its velocity will slow under certain conditions uh, through taxation or whatever. But effectively, they believe that most inflation is uh, cost push inflation mm. or price gouging. And some of them even go so far, Warren Mosley believes this, that they think the federal government's acceptance of higher rates of cost is what drives the inflation, which they think that literally, like, you know, because the government will pay so much for military spending or for milk or whatever, that they're actually allowing price gouging. Mm. I don't believe that, uh, if only because that actually assumes that the economy is a closed national system. Mm. methodological uh, nationalism strikes right. again right and so while they are right that currency proper is a public monopoly and theoretically there's an infinite amount of it the decoupling of currency and value is more than just the velocity of money all right and so that's where marxist albeit we don't we don't agree on what value is uh to be fair it's one of the one of the sticky wickets of Marxism, but that's how Marxists explain non-commodity money having inflationary pressures. Hmm. Um, commodity money, we don't, you know, commodity money is actually what capital assumes. He does talk about credit money. He doesn't really talk about fiat currency because it was rare. He assumed under Marx assumed under conditions of the time that, that, states generally wouldn't do it there was no theoretical reason why they wouldn't do it he wasn't like a theoretical gold bluggist he's just mm. figured that states weren't powerful enough to stop it from going into an inflation cycle now i think we have to deal with the fact that the u.s empire is that powerful and can mitigate that and also that's why things like argentina which everyone's like oh it's a disastrous policy it's just ideology they don't need to peg their currency to the dollar and i'm like well they have to buy stuff outside of their neighbors are themselves in another currency because their currency they, they don't control enough area or have enough power to for their currency monopoly to really extend beyond their borders and they don't produce a lot of the things they need 
So then they have to get it from outside, which means they have to peg their money to some other reserve currency. Now, the reserve currency used to be gold uh, for reasons of pre-modern technological things, I think. Mm. By that, I mean, like, gold is literally convertible. Like, metals are convertible. You can can melt them down, use them, melt them back down, store them, transfer them, etc. And usually metals had two prices, a price on the open on the open international market and then a price and local markets. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you will notice that like the coin gold problem is MMTers just bracket that out entirely. They go to ancient societies, which uh, were largely credit debit societies, then empires that were largely credit debit empires. They don't deal with international trade between those empires very much. That's where, commodity bartering and then gold really comes from mm-hmm. um this is not something marxist knew marx assumed the adam smith story um and i think we have to do a little better than that but this is why it it leads us to this uh very paradoxical situation in regards to mmters and keynesians mm-hmm. on one hand we think they're right about about the currency monopoly for fiat currency i think most of us do Hmm. Um, there are still some Marxist gold bugs out there, but yeah, who, right? That Jay who yeah. guy is Jay one Hugo, of them. Yeah, I used to write with him way you, back in the day. Used to fuck, used to fuck with that uh, Marxist gold bugism. Yeah, well, we argued about it then, and he called me a fascist for like. Well, the new the new third positionist, the mega communists, have taken up on it and argue that uh, because there's no longer any commodity money, that we actually have socialism stupid <laughs> stupid i mean like it's an like, fiat currency is not a labor token so <laughs> um labor tokens are non-transferable for a reason i think they argue that like the uh that the value form is broken down for that reason it's very convoluted that would take a whole episode and who needs a whole episode for stupid people we don't need yeah I, I, one of the things with with those guys is uh I, I, I know what text and marks I can cite to disprove them and start to extrapolate what they're talking about, but it's so much work I know. for, for such an art, for an argument that has almost no actual cachet yeah. on Twitter that it's just not worth doing. But I wonder if we should just because what if it actually does grow? Uh, it's growing uh, unfortunately i looked at one of their uh marxism leninism that guy ha infrahaz's marxism leninism in the time of multipolarity stream just i think was it last night or the night before and they had five thousand people viewing live i mean that is that's a lot more than i've ever had viewing live before so maybe that's it a is a project we could do it, it seems to be growing because it tells a just so story that matches very nicely with this sort of like um bullshit uh sort of depressive leftism of uh of the west where it's basically about picking geopolitical sides because it's all tied into this larger sort of uh culture slash geopolitical war between russia and ukraine that has nothing to do with literally almost nothing to do with historical marxist leninism yeah it has more to do with duganism and larucheism honestly right that's with that but. And it's like it's like a it's like a bad ideas rhyming dictionary. <laughs> I mean, but you you have to clean all that up too. You have to like ignore the anti-Marxist parts of Dugan and the explicit anti-Marxist conspiracy theories in LaRouche's inner circle yeah. versus his outer circle. 
Um, and you also need to change entirely your like your notion of uh, the revolutionary class because you need to somehow fit in uh, what we would call the petty bourgeoisie uh, into uh, the I guess well, the that's communist easy. They movement. Pick up- they 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 mix fascist proletarian nation theory and Chinese proletarian nation theory together, which they're separate, but they mix them together. And they'll get mad when you point out that they're using the fascist version, but whatever. Yeah. Well, um, we we maybe we're we off do. topic. We're off topic. We're very off topic. But there. I actually think yeah. to bring it in to, to to bring it in when we talk about this this incoherence, I, I often come off as a know it all to your audience. I know a lot of them think that I'm always like, well. Lauren has perfect information. And I'm like, no, I don't actually assume that at all. Um, what I assume is that I can see incoherence that are, is from external conditions. I'm mm-hmm. actually going to, I'm actually going to say something that I think people don't understand about a lot of what I assume. I don't think the majority of people can be faulted for having bad ideology right now. I, I don't think it's merely a question of political will Mm-hmm. I don't think it's just a question of ignorance, although ignorance is a large part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're looking at a world where there's multiple explan- multiple explanatory systems and every one of them fail. Yeah. And I don't have a good analytical system that's cohesive to replace it. I, I'm, I'm not. And this is where like my real I want people to understand I'm coming at this at a point of epistemic humility. I am yeah. ad hocing stuff just as much as anyone else because I see where the faults in these systems are and I'm just trying to figure out where we can fix them because because a lot of when we talk about inflation theories there's really roughly speaking four mm-hmm. but there's also one that the that the that the fed says that I know it can't believe mm. right um so let's go through the inflation theories right now. Yeah, and I and I want to say, uh, if we're wondering here about what the importance of this might be, there's a really interesting article that came out a couple of days from uh, the New York Times about the debt ceiling, uh, which is coming up. I think the extraordinary measures uh, that the Fed, that the Treasury is using, run out in between July and September. At which point, you have a cliff. You have Congress having voted a certain amount of spending. Uh, and then you have basically this debt ceiling, which has to be raised by Congress every once in a while. We all remember, was it 2011, the Simpson-Bowles committee and the first uh, debt ceiling political crisis under Obama? Was it 2011 when the Tea Party did that one? I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw like uh, the American political class staring over the edge of this cliff right here. And it was solved at the last minute through some back channel bargaining. Uh, In this instance, we're running up against it again. And if you think Varn and I have maybe like uh, uh, imperfect information, you out there have imperfect information. If we feel like even the four inflation theories are maybe off, imagine that an entire wing of the American political structure, which is to say the right wing of capital, which is to say most of the Republican Party, uh, including some Democrats, famously like Joe Manchin, believe that this inflationary crisis we've seen over the last two years is the direct result of the uh, monetary and fiscal policy of the United States government, that all that it's a combination of quantitative easing, which is partially true. But importantly, it's those $2,000 checks that everybody got. It was the PPP program 
It was expanded unemployment that brought upon, apparently globally, this inflationary crisis. So because they believe this particular theory uh, of how we got to this point, uh, they see the Silicon Valley bank crisis and collapse and all the other banking crises that are happening as directly related to that. And so they're not afraid of the debt ceiling, like, say, the left wing of capital is, who understands when Janet Yellen, Janet Yellen uh, the head of the Fed says this is going to destroy the dollar as the global reserve currency. The left wing of capital says, oh, well, that's that's probably true. We should probably try to avoid that. Whereas because the Republican theory of inflation is, I think, on its face wrong, but very compelling for them, given their particular ideological disposition and the general class coalition of people that they represent, uh, they are threatening to take us over that. And there are many within that fraction who would joy to take uh, the United States over that cliff. And so these have real world consequences, even for the ruling class. And so if we imagine the several thousands of people who are going to listen to this, trying to pull together a politics of ours, which is practical and realistic, but also is serious about building and wielding power, you know, we see what these schmucks are up to up there. They're going to take their wrong ideas and potentially drive their own empire off a fucking cliff. We should try to do a little better than that, you know, and that's what right. we're here for. So let's talk about the various theories of inflation. Um, I told you Roy Mosler's theory as best as I understand it. That's one of the MMT theories. The general theory, though, that's accepted by neoclassical economics is the monetary theory of inflation. Mm hmm which is the faster the money supply growth, and we're going to asterisk that, what causes that growth is going to be part of the debate, um, causes faster inflation. So faster money supply growth causes faster inflation if the money supply growth outstrips the growth of the economy. Hmm. The idea that this is one-to-one -one is classical monetary theory of inflation, and there's no evidence for it. Like the, the idea that, for example, a 1% growth in the money supply causes 1% inflation. Um, the problem that you have though, is, is one thing you would think figuring out the money supply would be easy. Hmm. All right. Um, you would calculate GDP growth and then you would like release the amount of, uh, liquidity necessary to basically match that. It assumes some sort of natural level, right, of money supply yeah. uh, or some equilibrium level, let's call it. Right. It uh, assumes the equilibrium that the money that supply. the technocrats, that the monetarists, that the freedmen's and the uh Volkers of the world, certainly the greenspans of the world could find, you know, and 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 apply using the levers that they have through uh monetary policy. Right. So here's here's the five ways that gets more complicated pretty in, pretty instantly. One, the US dollar is a reserve currency, meaning there's an there's an incentive for other countries to take it and stock it and they use it for things that do not necessarily go back into the US economy at all. Mm. Um, Petrodollars, for example. Right. That's gotten us into a bit of a crunch in the past. Right. While it's good for the for for the geopolitical class and maybe for the capitalists in a country to have a a massive reserve currency. Um, it also means it's very hard to know what all the factors would possibly be um, affecting your currency, too. While in some degree, monetary theory of, inf of inflation would say, well, printing money is what causes it. But credit creates money and then sucks money out. Mm. All right. So credit itself means that there's more liquidity in the economy at one time and less liquidity in the economy at another in a way that has nothing to do 
with the printing of money. Mm-hmm. Because um, uh, the one of the special prerogative, of course, of private banks is that they, when they do credit operations, they actually are, in a sense, creating money themselves. And so the Fed is actually, right, they're like one step removed from that process. Right. But since the money creation of private banks is regulated by the private bank's ability to borrow from the government because the government has monopoly on on the currency, or at least this form of the currency. Uh, well, it has a monopoly on currency. One of the things that I don't love is because of lefty theories about money that they were, unless you're v- listening to people who are very careful, they will say currency and money as if they're simultaneously, simultaneously the same thing. Mm. Um, a valid currency is always money. There are other things that can be money other than the currency. Mm. Um there's uh treasury bonds there's um there's there's all sorts of repurchase agreements there's all sorts of collaterals if commodities are traded for something other than their use say gold reserves which BRICS countries right now are accumulating for example which means they don't that to me indicates that they not just don't have faith in the u.s dollar they don't have faith in any reserve currency Mm -hmm. um that means that a commodity is standing in the place of fiat, of currency. And that also means that people are beginning to lose faith in the government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So you got, I've mentioned three complicators. There are other complicators. Um, there's also the fact that empirical studies actually don't indicate that prices actually respond to um the money supply immediately or maybe even at all mm. um a lot of the a lot of the empirical data shows that you have cost plus markup not and that markup's not figured figured out by the amount of money floating in the economy it's figured out by by um you know producer costs now that could still be downstream, very downstream, related to the amount of money in the guess because I'm already predicting what people are going to say about that. Mm. But it's actually just unclear. We do not see, for example, people like MMTers will tell you QE didn't lead to inflation because it just didn't lead to inflation because it was the same thing as open market operations. Mm. People, my response to them, and I'm not the only person who responds that way. If it was the same thing as open market operations. Why would they call it something different? And why did it not exist until 2001 in Japan, where open market operations have existed since we've had fractional reserve banking? Mm, mm-hmm. All right. The reason is the, pri- the, the the debt bonds being bought to hit the 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 appropriate um, like target interest rate. Um, an open market operations is just from the treasury. It's just the, the, the Fed itself buying bonds from treasury. Mm-hmm. And QE, it's buying bonds from private corporations. It's like it's actually like paying them out early, mm-hmm. more or less. Um, and thus removing some of their debt load. Right. And to hold, so to hold either till mostly to maturity, right? Or to hold to the point where the bad assets, you know, are are gone and reflated, and then you can sell them back. Because QE yeah. isn't like just a bank that the that the Fed has. It, it no, they aren't just yeah. printing money or putting. I mean, they are in some ways just putting dots on accounts, but they're not either. Like, right. 
So what does that lead to? Though? So people go, well, why didn't QE lead to massive inflation? And well, it's because it seems like it just went into asset bubbles. Mm-hmm. And which is something I I predicted in 2019, but I had MMTers tell me I was insane for. Mm. And I was like, I think we're going to have some, I, I think we're going to have a crisis. I don't, I wasn't sure if it was deflationary or inflationary actually in 2020 before COVID. All right. Because all these assets were already getting kind of unmoored from any profitability. And all these most profitable things you see here, all, all, all the nouveau riche on the four or 500 individuals list, for example. Mm. They're all based off of businesses that showed no profitability till they established monopsony pricing. And they established monopsony pricing through a mixture of like venture capital and government contracts. So that's Amazon, that's everything Elon Musk touched, that's uh, Teal's businesses, et cetera. There's okay. an article right here to, as a sidebar from uh, Market Watch uh, about the end of uh, what some uh, bourgeois economists have been calling the um, everything bubble. So if we understand, you know, the last, how long has, uh, has quantitative tightening been going on for? Has it been a year? A year, a year or a year. so? In that year, uh, in the crypto realm, uh, losses incurred, and these are just losses that have been accounted for. Uh, in crypto, uh, the crypto bubble, let's call it, have been $2 trillion. Uh, in tech, so the technology sector, $5 trillion. And in a very specific case that we talked about in an earlier episode of this miniseries, uh, the UK government bond or gilt market, uh, $500 billion in losses. So is right. that fundamentals? Is that, you know, the, but, but the idea of an everything bubble isn't like an obscure Marxist one, right? The idea that all of this liquidity frothing around is going to go into inflating massive asset bubbles all over the place is pretty well known, I think. Right. At least what, among what's the different is, is what we would say it's fictitious capital because it's yeah. non-productive. Like, and w- so what do we mean by that? Nothing's actually getting produced by a lot of this asset inflation. And we saw this also in the fact that our, our actual productive economy has cracked. Yeah. One of the things about being a international reserve currency, from what I can kind of tell, is it somewhat encourages this. Because to mean a, to be a reserve currency, it's good to be a consumer of last resort. Yes. Um, but it also, to be a consumer of last resort, it means you you probably need to offset your productive capacity now we've done that primarily actually through automation and but also through um outsourcing um increasingly complicated uh international supply chains right but so what does that mean it doesn't mean we're not productive anymore and that's like that's actually we're still one of the most productive economies if we weren't we couldn't do our fiat currency i don't i don't think people there is a material base beyond like pure military and geopolitical power. Right. There's still a productive base behind American uh, monetary power. Anyway. But There's- it's but it's a very fragile productive base, highly tied into an international global supply chain that broke down. So this leads us to another theory of inflation, which is mm. it, inflation happens when there's an endogenous shock, whatever the fuck that means. Uh, <laughs> exogenous, endogenous, exogenous. Yeah, exogenous shock. 
Not one that comes out of the blue from the outside that hits us, like COVID nineteen, for example. Right. People will argue, of course, or the uh, oil crisis is another, or one. the oil crisis of the nineteen seventies, or the one from a couple of years ago. Uh, people will argue that it was this exogenous shock uh, that led to this situation that we're in. But if you look at uh, twenty nineteen, uh, there was already a liquidity shock. Like the sort of tendencies that we're seeing right now, which have now brought down three, two regional banks and one humongous international bank, which is Credit Suisse. Uh, you saw liquidity crunch already in 2019, months before uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the lockdown and all the economic effects uh, happened. You had in the, it was in the repurchasing, in the repo markets. All of a sudden, banks weren't lending to one another anymore. And the Fed had to take extraordinary me measures to ensure that all the behind the scenes sort of movements of ones and zeros that happened between the big banks, usually after hours, uh, continued because they got scared. They got shocked. So the exogenous shock is always brought in. Uh, and I think that, you know, bourgeois economists who, trot that out do believe it because i do think they believe in a sort of self-regulating economy uh but we should be very very skeptical of this exogenous um explanation for it i'm sorry to continue with your no, yeah with I'm, your... I'm big on i'm big on pointing out that exogenous shocks tend to just exacerbate prior trends to they break which means that attempts by capitalists to adjust the economy accordingly can't happen fast enough so it is not I don't want to discount the 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 external shock theory, but I don't think I, I don't think it's explanatory in and of itself. Um, so it's epiphenomenal, that, right? But there's always yeah. something, yeah, yeah. Um, or it's it, so, it's proximate. It's not the ultimate cause. So there are three types of inflation that are sometimes cited into this monetary theory, sometimes not. There's what we call demand pull inflation. We don't have evidence except in supply chain breakdowns. Uh, are in like luxury goods um, that this is a predominant form of inflation. So what is it? Um, demand pull is just, there's a lot of demand. There is almost, there's not enough stocks to adjust for that demand. You raise the prices. If that's is, across the... Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, this is this was one of the main arguments behind uh, the inflation that we've seen recently was that all of a sudden, especially during the lockdown, when people couldn't go out to restaurants and spend their money there, or they couldn't get other types of services that happened in person, all of a sudden, everybody was buying a ton more physical commodities and goods, and uh, that demand pull inflation kicked in. All right. Then there's, then there's cost push inflation. This is inflation that has resulted in increasing uh, prices in the supply chain. All right. Um, we also heard this during COVID, and I think we saw this sectionally being true. Mm -hmm. um, and there's built-in inflation, which is a theory that basically inflation is inevitable at around 3 to 4% range. Um, and that's because um, you, you need an increase for wages wages lead to, to a higher cost of goods and services. So both cost push and built-in inflation sometimes also have a, a, another theory of inflation called the class conflict theory of inflation. Oh. And this was a Marxist-Keynesian hybrid model that came out of, uh, I believe, Sweden, but is the idea that increases in labor conflict is actually what drives inflation. Hmm. Um so yeah, 
leave it to the Swedish to come up with a anti-worker thing <laughs> off, of, off of uh Keynesianism and Marxism mixed together. But um so so that you have to regulate the labor market accordingly. Now that's important because we know that the Fed does not justify its current pushes in any of those theories of inflation solely. It's pre- it's also not justifying it in the old monetary theory of inflation, where it's like we can just get people to save more, it'll slow, it'll move, it'll slow the velocity down, liquidity will drop, banks will build up more reserves, and by building up more reserves, everything will become more solvent and then we'll get lending going again. Right. Um, like I said, that was disproven. That that works. When I explain it, it works really well on paper. <laughs> um, why I'm sure not- you could you could do a beautiful beautiful like physics um, deduced like a uh, chart or graph or algorithm al- algorithmically created uh, theorem that makes it uh, work perfectly on paper. Right. So get a Nobel other- Prize for it even. What's the other theory of how you get rid of you know get rid of inflation? Well, the the classic Keynesian one, which Keynesians have largely split two ways about. So post-Keynesians either tend to be what can be called like neoclassical post-Keynesians. So they're Keynesians who have abandoned Keynesian tax policy mm. for monetarism. Um, that's that's actually probably Larry Sermis is definitely Paul Krugman. Mm. And then there is the other kinds of Keynesians who either became neo-chartalist uh, modern monet- uh, and got aligned with or just became modern monetary theorists. Um, who say that, well, it's about where you put the liquidity and and uh, if we ate it up with more, with larger job guarantees or whatever, that it would just kind of stabilize out. Nobody, and they will occasionally talk about Keynesian tax policy, uh, the MMT as well. Nobody really wants to talk about it, though, because it, its actual implications are highly politically unpalatable. Yeah, when um, the economy overheats, all of a sudden you have to tax all that excess out of the economy, which means raising taxes on workers and on capitalists, which is politically not a solution that right. uh, that is palatable. People will sometimes say that it's just raising taxes on capitalists, and that will help you with asset inflation, mm. but it won't do anything about like food inflation or or anything like that. So the food, the what's called the uh, the inelastic goods, uh, that mm-hmm. the inflation there is, I think, the most interesting one uh, for our purposes, because that's the one that hits, of course, at the core of of everyday life. It's at the core of the working class. Um, and that's the one that, you know, we experientially see, you know, if you if you look in the last couple of years, it, uh, apparently headlining core inflation is dipping a little bit. Uh, but beware that uh, that 15 percent rise in things like shelter, in food, in transportation, even when headline, uh, even when inflation starts to dip, that's still 15 percent more that you're paying for stuff than you were two years ago. And uh, that, of course, unless you're seeing 15 percent wage increases, which I think nobody is really seeing right now, that is a huge and major hit. And that, and ultimately why this inflation debate is important and it matters is because this has been the justification for the monetary policy that we've seen, which in its own way as it worked through the system over the last couple of years, started to fracture the already fragile aspects of the economy um, that had kind of blown up 
over the last 15 years or so exploding spectacularly in the Silicon Valley. So let's talk about how we measure inflation. Cause I'm actually going to like make people even please. more frustrated. Yeah, no, um, please do. Let's get there into is it. The consumer pricing index, um, which does include services and housing is included in services, except when the fed cites it, mm. when the fed cites it, housing is bracketed out. It also brackets out food and energy. So the 3% inflation target has never included that, all right, um, because those prices are too volatile. They were assumed um, to be volatile because of the ups and downs of harvest and the commodity markets, uh, you know, out of Chicago and whatever. So they were kind of abstracted away in the calculus. Mm-hmm. But that abstracting away doesn't really or it falls apart when all of a sudden you have a massive food inflation like we've seen as a result of supply chain crunches and of course the uh, Russo-Ukrainian war. Right. So there so so there's that. So that doesn't include that. Although when they're talking about inflation now, people do tend to bring it up and it is measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Like they have the measurement. Housing, like I said, is in the is in the consumer price index, but it, it is not generally factored in for for the general index the other thing is the index treats pretty much every sector like more or less equally mm. so for example like healthcare inflation is in services but all other services are treated as pretty much of equal importance to healthcare. Mm. so you can see how distorting that would be yeah. and on top of that the way we pay for healthcare in the united states is so insane that i don't think anyone actually knows what actual healthcare inflation is because mm. insurance mediates pricing there is no posted prices. You can go to the same hospital uh, with or without insurance and get five different prices for the same thing mm-hmm. on the same day. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to really measure that. Yeah. We we do know the overall net spending um, in that regard. But again, a lot of that's on debt. It's hard to factor in like where that money is exactly going and coming from. So that's actually a very complicated inflation factor. So all these things make the inflation number like it's, it's usually probably higher than it's stated anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, even when things are included in the price index, they're not weighted by like, you know, how much of the average income is going to actually have soon. Right. Now they also use another index that kind of does weight a little bit for that. It's like the personal consumer it's a pce i can't remember mm-hmm. what it's but but and and they use that sometimes and that's a little bit better and adjusting for this but there's still a lot of economists and not just not just uh, left-wing ones who think that like for example rents aren't very well captured in this picture mm-hmm. rents are captured in a weird way where it's like a survey mm-hmm. of landlords asking some percentage of them whether they intend to raise rents in the future that's very very vague and and it's not it's not working with like very very precise data sets it's more of a vibe that compare that with like what the what the mortgages places are and like do some kind of adjustment it's very um and a lot of people think it actually leads to rental inflation being undercounted so i'd I'd like to I'd like to stop for a second for the listeners at home. Understand, again, that when we talk about quantitative easing or we talk about the Fed raising or lowering rates, depending, very, very blunt instrument. And even they, with all the powers of uh, analysis and statistics, um, are unable to even capture the real complexity of not just the American economy, but how that interacts with the global economy. And yet they're using this massive blunt instrument. 
of uh, rate increases in order to have what they hope are the intended effects, which they claim is, of course, like a cooling off of the economy. Uh, but I think we can see clearly uh, that what it really is, is uh, punishment of the working class uh, of the United States and elsewhere. But we'll get well, there. I mean, we'll get there. I, the, the thing is, though, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you, but I also think uh, there's a limit to that. And that is it doesn't actually know what the fuck it's going to the effects are. Oh, like, I think I think that they're completely out in left field. But I think that when they when they I think they're out of their depth, honestly. But I think when one the one metric I think which they pay attention to the most is wages because they understand that there's something about productivity. They see productivity as the sort of wellspring of growth in the capitalist economy, and they see that as unit output output per worker hour. And this is something I think they're concerned with when they talk about the wage price spiral um, of theory of inflation. I think that they know if this can do one thing, it can squeeze workers and hopefully increase unemployment in an overheated economy. And I think that ultimately there's a long, a medium to longer term drive here in order to make America safe for the reshoring that's going to be happening, the friend shoring and the reshoring, the prosecution of an economic cold war, um, deglobalization, which is happening pretty, pretty quickly right now. And the understanding at the end of the day that the American working class uh, has had it too good for too long. And if you're going to rebuild manufacturing capacity, you know, in military uh, goods, and if you're going to build it in uh, semiconductors, if you're going to do it even in energy, uh, that the greatest threat to that, of course, is uh, raising rising wages. But anyways, that's a sidebar. So we've covered the three the three dominant theories of inflation and we will we note that all three of these can be true simultaneously we've also talked about the monetarist theory which can be tied into these theories or not um clearly the monetarist theory as a one-to-one is not true um we've talked about the raw Mozart mmt theory the other mmt theories are more opaque to me like i actually don't they've not been explained well mm. and a lot of people say that there aren't multiple mnt theories there's only one which i don't believe mm. but because uh, because i think like stephanie kelton has responded pretty negatively to mosler's idea that basically government purchasing prices is, is actually setting this mm. um so let's get to some other theories we, i mentioned briefly class warfare theory interestingly at least to the public this can uh the monetarists have adopted actually this Keynesian Marxist hybrid model to mm. justify their their spike their wage increase thing, even though they know and we know they know this, they know it's not true because they they only attribute one to one and a half percent of inflation to wages, and we right. also know that inflation has far outpaced wage uh uh wage, wage raises yeah. even even in the beginning of the post covid period. Yeah. All right. Um, and we've also lost a ton of money in the economy, at least from the standpoint of like your mega campus rentiers like Musk and Zuckerberg. And yeah, Bezos, that's seven and a half trillion or so that I mentioned just in the last year with the explosion of these bubbles. has been a huge you hit. would think if we were just dealing with monetary amounts would 
because that money's just gone. It's not gone anywhere. It's gone. It's gone. It was a fictitious valuation of these particular assets, which was factored into GDP, which was factored into like the real economy that suddenly poof went up in smoke. So there's 7.5 trillion right there, right out of the uh, out of the liquidity mix. Pretty good. Right. Pretty good start, guys. <laughs> right. Which you would think then would indicate that this is a much broader pro- problem. The other problem, though, is the productive economy. Not the rentier economy is not natural is not nationally delimited. Yes. So what do I mean by that? Well, we've already talked about how the Fed makes policy for Malaysia mm. by by the fact that the U.S. is a reserve currency. This brings us back to the Republicans mm-hmm. because they're now risking the recurve the reserve currency status. We don't know what will happen some people think it would be economically disastrous for the u.s a lot of people think it might actually be good for reassuring whether that reassuring will be under good conditions for the worker is a whole nother question but the 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 other problem that is not we haven't even got to but we mentioned on other episodes is there's just not fuck enough people and we're also not opening the borders back up for whatever reason we um, were Democrats have given up on that. So 20, 2015, I read today, 2015 to 2016, you had a million migrants per year. That's at 370,000 per year right now. And then you add to that, of course, 1.1 million workers who are dead. I mean, not all those people were active in the workforce, but 1.1 million uh, dead from COVID uh, combined with about 4 million who have left uh, the labor force in the United States, either from long COVID or age, early retirement, people in their 60s. Hell, we were in Florida a month ago, and there's a hell of a lot of people between the ages of 65 or whatever who have moved down there in recent times uh, and have definitively left the labor force. Yeah. So that that means that we that it is un, and I've been saying this for a while. It is unclear to me how they could even possibly begin to discipline the labor force the way they want to to raise productivity back up um, because that's what they're really concerned with is productivity kind of kind of it was super American productivity was insane from like the eighties up to the up until two thousand seven. It never recovered after the recession. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there may be a lot of reasons for that. I, the World I, Bank came out with a, a big analysis uh, paper, I think just today, 583 pages, and it's called the, long t- the, the Long-Term Prospects of Slow Growth or something like that. Basically, over the next 10 years, the World Bank is estimating uh, global growth at 2.2%. Even in the quote-unquote developing countries, as we know, China has brought much of the world economy along for the last 30 years or so, from estimate from 6% down to 4%. And the reasons they give for this are, and of course, they don't have the reason per se for the low productivity, uh, but they say it's low productivity, it's the rise of uh, trade uh, barriers, and of course, it is an aging and declining uh, population of workers. So, what their solution to that, the World Bank solution to that, is of course, is to open up trade. Well, okay, but but American policy uh, and Western policy in general is moving in the completely opposite direction. I was to say it's actually world policy is moving in the complete opposite. Direction. Complete China's yeah. going in the opposite direction too. So, yeah, I mean, the sanctions regime on Russia obviously is a huge part of it. The pivot to Asia and the terrorist regime that started under Trump was con- uh, uh, continued under Biden. So even what the World Bank says 
Of course, they talked to about the matching up of uh, fiscal and monetary policy across liberal capitalist nations across the world, as though uh, particular bourgeois nations right now could just simply choose to get on the same page with one another. Right. But the point is, is that this fear about productivity um, and uh, and its its uh, decline over at least the last 15 years or so ago is a very real one in the minds of the ruling class. And one so that might go a bit a bit towards explaining some of these policies. But there's another theory. This is the one that that the that the post Keynesians and some of the MMTers are on. I need to explain it a little bit. Mm. One is that there's a flex price market where prices are competitive, and an administered price market where monopsony or monopoly pricing uh, sets in. And so, for example, rents are administered prices. Like they're always monopoly. IP is always monopoly. That's what's going on there. Uh, and, you know, for example, patent law and copyright law is supposed to allow for administered pricing in certain areas as a reward for development. Um, a lot of the post Keynesians say that basically our banking and our banking policies, et cetera, have led to administrative pricing, even in banking, mm. um, which is a very different story than the story that we just went over um because if you want to deal with administered pricing you have to stop you know this is actually the, this was the fear of the of the early 20th century progressives who mm. were really anti-monopoly um you know and this also interestingly is a theory that you could get petite bourgeois on board for because it would favor them yeah. uh interestingly break up the trusts Interestingly, the post-2007, post-Dodd-Frank compromise actually kind of assumes both things. Mm. So, for example, uh, it favors big banking and loan settlements. It favors big banking and um, and payouts to debt. Like, that's part of what happened with Silicon Valley banks is they took loans out from other banks. Well, the, the other banks get paid out first. Mm -hmm. um, the... The more complicated thing here, though, is to deal with that, they actually encourage relative deregulation and kind of risky behavior in mid-range banks. Yeah, the, the you have under, it wasn't originally $250 billion. I think they raised the cap, but you have the big four banks, basically, uh, in the United States, which are under a, a certain regulatory regime. These are the two big-to-fail banks. A notion, of course, that only goes back to, like, I think it was 1984 with uh, the continental illinois bank failing at the beginning yeah the that, that gets thrown around bank. when they got when they got rid of the savings and loans bank and then in 1998 when they finally fully repealed glass steagall yeah um the people were pointing out that like well you're going to lead to a banking policy where lots of monopsony power is involved because both commercial and and consumer banking are now consolidated and there's right. no way to compete in that so my my thing is the Fed doesn't know. I think the Fed. I think the Fed thinks all of these things are true because mm. I think all of them are true. I think mm. all of these conditions, except for like pure monetary theory, I, I don't think that's true. Yeah. But the, there is cost push inflation. There's opportunistic price gouging. Yes. There is some demand pull inflation mm -hmm. um, for very and very specific and it's localized. That doesn't usually actually trickle up to the general economy though. 
Uh, there's monopsony pricing, given how much of our economy is now in rents. Mm-hmm. But that rentier economy is totally dependent on the price of debt being low, as we've seen. Uh, you know, the, the industries we see collapse first are the industries you'd expect to collapse first if monetary conditions were were the driver of those particular industries, right, sectors. Right, exactly. Which, by the way, leads me to a paradox of MMT. MMT's insistence of a quote natural interest rate of a bank lending loan of zero percent actually helps people who already have capital if they're in rentier mm. uh, uh, conditions. So there's a reason why there seemed to be a left coalition with certain business elements that was supportive of MMT. They benefited from its policies as long as they never delivered on say, say the other policy proposals. And MMT will say it's descriptive, not normative. So, but they all have policy proposals like full employment and whatnot, which I've just always pointed out, they're never going to do that in capitalist society. That would make workers way too powerful. Oh, of course. Yeah. Like, yeah, the 1970s in a place like Great Britain scares the shit out of the capitalist class where you had a militant, you know, uh, working class with a lot of jobs around who is able to basically use their uh, collective power to ask for quote unquote too much. I mean, that the idea that they would voluntarily give into that sort of reform is has always seemed a little wild to me. If you're at the point where you can push through that sort of thing, why would you stop there? I guess is a question. Yeah. So we we have this question that we have at least we have at least two inflation theories, at least two, and I've I've outlined like six or seven, but some of them can be true at the same time as others. Um. And we have, you know, the, the disciplining of, of central bankers versus disciplining of public consumption. Um, if raising the rates doesn't work in the way it's supposed to, they, the only reason they seem to be able to do it, and they even say it openly, is to discipline labor. Um, the, uh, the European Central Bank did an analysis, and they said that raising the uh, interest rates, raising the rates 1%, uh, decreases inflation 0.1 to 0.2%. And the lead time for that is nine quarters, right? So right. it takes nine quarters to get like one-tenth of the bang for your buck when it comes to actual inflation. If they're saying this out loud amongst one another, it begs the question, you know, what what's actually happening? Right. Well, yeah. And, and I, uh, the Doha boys seem to be losing. The, our old globalizationists, I think worldwide, they know that they are losing. And they started seeing this, I think, even before Trump. Mm-hmm. People like Peter Zion didn't come out of nowhere. And that's because the dollar hegemony being tied to like blue water defense or whatever. The U.S. is going to do that to a limited degree, but it actually doesn't seem to have the capacity or the will to keep doing it for the entire world. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that like, China hasn't built up enough to take it over yet. And so we're in this weird interregnum interregnum. That's we're really in, an, uh, in, a, in a Rigi type interregnum right now. One right. that was predicted uh, in the, in the long 20th century. Uh, which does lead to multipolarity in the way that it's used in British geopolitical economy. I'm not bringing it up in the way it's, it's abused in on politics. Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Twitter. <laughs> and people was like, Oh, that's not Duke. I'm like, it's, like you guys have never heard about English uh, geopolitical theory until Dugan, so I don't believe you. Why? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, um, but also, if you knew that theory, you'd learn that the most stable form of world order, according to those people, is a bipolar world, not a not a unipolar world, and not a multipolar world. A unipolar yeah. world is too unstable. 
uh, and a multipolar world is also too unstable. And you um, and you're not even in a bipolar world like we have between say 1948 and uh, 1991, where one of those two poles is actually committed to at least on paper to global communism. You instead have a sort of like relatively inward looking uh, state socialist uh, China uh, pulling together under its umbrella, very reactionary global forces, of course, like uh, Vladimir Putin and various uh, dictators around the world. So you don't even have like the the sort of um, the rhetorical aspects of like uh, a multipolar communist world arising. I don't know. No, it's not. I mean, one of the ironies is it, the only way to undo the Sino-Soviet split is for the Soviet Union not to be communist anymore. Uh, even if it was only communist in name only, that's that's a big fucking irony in it. It is. Um, and... <laughs> I'm sorry to, to to cut you off. We're getting to about the hour mark, and I want to yeah. put a, a marker in this because this is about the time that on the antifada side of things, we move from the free episode into behind the paywall. So I think this might be a good time to let folks know. First off, you know, subscribe to varn vlog you've been putting out like tremendous amount of content recently it's been really impressive to see lots of great interviews lots of good solo stuff so if you want to see that plus the bonus stuff definitely do that and if you want to hear the rest of this episode where we're going to hone in again on uh what it is behind this inflation push what's really happening what we think what we can intuit behind the scenes going on that's leading to this massive crisis of the global capitalist system where the various fracture points uh might uh, go for, uh, after these bank collapses, shadow banking, for example. We're going to look into that mm -hmm. too. Um, subscribe to the Antifada, uh, patreon.com slash the Antifada and patreon.com slash barn blog, right? And yep. listen to the rest of this conversation because we're going to get uh, an even deeper dive going. So we'll see you on the other side. See you on this side.